Hi guys, I have a very exciting update for you. We have a new person who's going to be a co-host on the podcast, and I would love to introduce her to you all. So hi, Sophie. Hi, my name is Sophie. I'm also on the Teen Advisory Board, and I'm super excited to be here. I've been a lifelong reader and writer, and this is such an exciting opportunity for me to learn more about the industry and talk to some of my favorite authors. Some of my favorite books are The Starless Sea by Erin Morgenstern, The Invisible Life of Addie LaRue by V.E. Schwab, and Meet Me in Another Life by Katrina Sylvie. I, today, I am thrilled to introduce Kate Williams, the author of the Babysitter's Coven series, as well as her upcoming, upcoming thriller novel, Never Coming Home, which is set to be released in June of 2022. She has also written for several magazines such as Cosmopolitan, Nylon, and Seventeen. Hi, Kate. Hi. Thank you guys so much for having me on. Thank you so much for being here. We're super excited to have you on. So um, I guess I'll just get into it. So our first question for you is, how did you come up with the idea for the Babysitter's Coven series? Um, it was a joke for a long time uh, because I, I was always really interested in how often the babysitter showed up as a trope in horror movies um, and how often she was kind of positioned as a victim or she was set up to be a victim, but then she ultimately was the hero. And, you know, Halloween with Jamie Lee Curtis is obviously the most famous example of this, but there are lots of other movies where this same kind of thing kind of comes into play. Um, And then I was a huge fan of the Babysitter's Club when I was growing up. Um, And I always just joked that I was going to write a movie called The Babysitter's Coven because it just seemed like a very obvious crossover. Um, And, you know, I kind of couldn't believe that it hadn't been done before. Um, And I worked on a lot of other ideas for a young adult novel, and they all were ultimately things that I was not enjoying writing. And I kind of was like, well, if I'm not having fun writing this, then how can I expect anyone to have fun reading it? So I just thought, I was like, well, maybe you should try actually writing The Babysitter's Coven. And when I did, that was the, you know, story that actually worked for me. Um, And I was like, oh, yeah, this is the book that you're supposed to write. But even then, it took me a long time to kind of get it to where it was, where I realized like, oh, this is a comedy, (laughs) you know. So I feel like I went through several different phases of kind of having this idea, but really having to figure out what it actually was and um, in what version was it going to be an idea that actually had legs. Well, I'm really glad that you made it a comedy because that's one of my favorite things about it. Like every time I read the first page and I ran downstairs and I read it to my mom and we were laughing out loud for like 20 minutes. So thank (laughs) you for giving us that moment together. Our next question kind of follows that same vein where Esme, who's the main character in The Babysitter's Coven, her voice is so natural and realistic and funny. And she's one of my favorite main characters in a YA series because of how authentic and just how like on the nose her narration is. She's very observant and I just, I love her so much. Um, And I feel like I'm talking to one of my friends whenever I read her narration. So how did you channel this authentic teenage girl voice in Esme in your writing? Um, Well, thank you so much for saying all of that. That all makes me so happy to hear. Um, 
I I feel like there's a lot of Esme's voice that is my voice. Um, I you know worked in pop culture magazines for a long time. I worked for youth oriented brands. Um, and, you know, I worked in social media and I was a professional blogger for a long time. And so I feel like when you spend that much time on the internet, like you kind of can't help but start to develop this kind of like sarcastic, I mean, it's very much an internet voice um, where I feel like internet humor kind of seeks the absurd and then like takes it to a next couple levels. Like, and you see that with like meme humor. Um, and, you know, not, what I think is so great about meme humor is that you either get it or you don't. Like if you've ever had a meme that you think is really funny and you've tried to explain it to someone else and they're just sitting there looking at you, like not even laughing. Um, I feel like a lot of Esme's voice is kind of honed from that, like leaning into what I think is funny and my way of looking at the world and kind of not worrying about trying to make it super accessible because you know that someone somewhere is going to find it funny and like those are your people. And I feel like that's my very much like my sense of humor is very much based on like inside jokes and kind of observations and also taking situations to the nth level. Um, and that's what I find funny. And that's what Esme finds funny as well. I for sure see that in just the fact of babysitters being the people to save the world. I mean, it's yeah. kind of true. They save the kids, but taking yeah, it to that nth exactly. degree, it's hilarious. And I think that from, you know, the funny and humorous standpoint, you know, you craft such exciting novels too outside of the humor and they read like TV shows and capture the reader's attention from the very first page as Lily's talked about. You know, how do you write these books that are so enticing for readers, especially from our demographic as teenagers? Um, well, someone told me recently that they thought my books were like a Halloween movie, like a family Halloween movie. And I loved that comparison so much. Um, because I wanted it to kind of feel like a caper. And I was like very influenced by, you know, a lot of these kind of classic movies like Adventures and Babysitting where things are just kind of set up to kind of snowball where one thing happens and another thing happens. And, um, you know, or even Superbad is one of my favorite teenage movies from like the last couple of decades. Um, and that's another one where things kind of like a small thing kind of spirals and like they're all just scrambling to kind of, you know, keep it together. Um, so I was definitely very much influenced by movies. Um, and then also, you know, I, like I said, I worked for magazines for years. I was a copywriter. So I definitely am very well schooled in the idea that less is more um, and that you know, the most important thing for me with these books is to keep things moving. Um, and I think that's a little more important in YA. Like when you get into like contemporary literature and literary nonfiction, you know, a lot can, you know, a lot of those books are very based on description or like, you know, getting a certain idea across. Whereas like a lot of YA, like you, that story needs to be like the backbone of it. Um, 
And so I think I just always kind of reminded myself that something had to be happening. Every scene had to be getting something forward to the next scene. Um, and it's definitely was the hardest thing for me to do with these because it's like, I can write dialogue all day long. I can write like character descriptions. Um, I can set up funny scenes, but making sure that everything came back to that big arc and that it was always going in the same direction was definitely the most difficult part. When you were saying that everything serves a purpose, I that's one of my favorite things about your books, again, because I'm a really slow reader. So every time I picked up The Babysitter's Coven, I was reading it physically and I don't read a lot of books physically. Yeah. I just loved how everything was moving forward. And even the parts where things aren't moving forward, it's funny. So everything is being <laughs> carried through. But basically almost every single sentence I was reading served the whole plot. Yeah. It was so cohesive. It was amazing. So you oh, did great. that Thank very you well. So much. <laughs> I'll say something that's kind of difficult. Um, and I actually, I think writing for teenagers is, I think that teenagers are such a discerning audience. And um, so, you know, sometimes people try to throw a little bit of shade at that. And I'm like, no, like you're talking about like literally like the smartest people who are so like discerning and so sharp and who are like, literally shaping all of pop culture like you have to be really on point when you're writing for teenagers one of the things that I think is hardest about writing for teenagers is getting the schedule right because sometimes you're like oh man like it's Wednesday and I need this to happen but they still have two more days of school before it's Saturday and they can go do this so sometimes there are like those little things where I'm like, oh, I just wish school just wasn't in the picture. <laughs> you know? I'm like, let's hurry up and get to the weekend. Um, and, you know, I know a lot of people actually feel like that. <laughs> so when they're living their lives as teenagers, not just writing about them. So, yeah, it adds to the authenticity. Again, <laughs> wanting school to be over. I feel that yeah. in my heart. <laughs> Our next question is that the setting of Kansas is a really significant aspect of the Babysitter's Coven um, because it influences the way the characters feel. Like Janice, she's looking forward to leaving Spring River and going off to college. Mm -hmm. But Esme, she is proud of her town. She kind of has an attitude of, I can make fun of it, but you can't. Yeah. And there are a couple moments where she's not sure if she wants to leave. Um, and I also read that you were from Kansas. Yeah. So I was wondering, why did you decide to set the Babysitter's Coven in Kansas? And did the setting influence the way you wrote your characters? Or did you just kind of naturally know how they would feel after deciding to set it in Kansas? Um. Well, like I said, I grew up in Kansas, um, you know, and I was a teenager in the 90s uh, before the internet. So everything culturally for me felt very far away. Um, you know, I, if I wanted to find new music, like I would have to go into like, you know, a used CD store where it was like super intimidating because it was staffed by like all older dudes. And, you know, I'd like look at through things and try to like look at the cover of an album and be like, okay, well, is this something I'm gonna like? And it's eight bucks and I don't wanna spend eight bucks on something that I don't like. Um, and with magazine or with, you know, fashion and all that other stuff, like I would go to the big bookstores and just like sit in the magazine section and like read, um, you know, everything I could um, without buying it. 
And so I was trying to think about like, okay, what would teenagers in Kansas be like now if they actually were able to like more easily access like the kind of information that I was like always looking for. Um, and so that was kind of like how I got Esme and Janice like into the kind of stuff they're into. So it's like, you know, they're very much into like vintage, they're very much into thrifting um, because it's like everything is so easily accessible that it's like you have to dig a little bit harder to find stuff that is really going to express who you are. Um, and then, you know, I, so I grew up in Kansas, I went to school here, and then I left when I was 22, and I didn't come back until last year when I was 41. So I was gone for almost two decades, um, and I left Kansas and moved to New York. And as soon as I moved to New York when I was 22, I realized that I had always thought being from Kansas was like the most uncool thing ever. But like, I learned that it was like a conversation stopper. Like people would be like, oh, where are you from? And I'd be like, oh, I'm from Kansas. And instantly like, everyone would be like, what, what was that like, you know? And I learned that, you know, we thought that we were like so far away from everything when I was a teenager, but we really weren't. And I also like, for me, like my high school experience was very kind of like stereotypical 90s. Like, you know, we hung out in parking lots, like we drove around all night trying to find our friends. And, and so I just really, as an adult, like I'm so grateful for that kind of middle of nowhere growing up that I had, because I think that it really did kind of push us to be creative and, you know, also very appreciative of you know, the opportunities that were there um, when they were there, rather than kind of just, you know, taking them for granted and stuff. Like, cause I have like friends who like grew up in LA and like they took drum lessons from Travis Barker and like Sarah Michelle Geller lived down the street. And I'm like, that's amazing. But you know, like I appreciate like what I got too. Yeah, I've wanted to move to Kansas after reading your book. <laughs> Literally, I was like, I was Googling. <laughs> It's amazing. I mean, I, I love where I live. I love the Midwest. You know, it's like, I think that people here are really, really genuine. Um, and one of the things that I have really appreciated about Kansas is that, you know, I grew up in a place where not everyone thought the same. And I feel like very early on, it kind of forced me to look at a lot of my ideas and make sure I really believed them because I knew that some of them would be challenged. Um, and I feel like kind of learning how to, you know, articulate and kind of argue for what I believed in at an early age has been really, really helpful. Yeah, totally. And I, I think that, um, following up your book, which, you know, obviously it's such a great impact on so many people is hard. You know, it's hard for any author to produce like such a, you know, a stopping sequel that propels readers to want to read more. And, you know, we found that the sequel to The Babysitter's Coven for Better or Cursed is just as amazing as the first book. And you totally met that high expectation of all your fans and skipped, you know, that sequel slump. Yeah. <laughs> when people are oh, stuck in. Thank you. 
And, you know, does your, your experience writing shorter pieces for magazines help you to get your point across concisely in your books and eliminate the filler content that is found in so many sequels? Um, I think so. I mean, I definitely think that my experience, you know, as an editor um, and especially, I just got used to having, you know, my writing kind of, you know, dissected and made purposeful very early on in my career. Um, so it's like, I don't argue, I will occasionally argue for something if I think it, you know, if a, especially when it comes to character development, you know, I'll argue for like a particular aspect of a character's development or a particular scene that I think really puts forth part of a character's personality. But if someone says something isn't working, I really take that to heart. Um, and so I'm very quick to cut. Um, you know, I usually, you know, go back through, like I just um, finished doing my second to final read on Never Coming Home, which is my book that'll come out this summer. And primarily what I did with that was like go through and just take stuff out, like anything that I was reading and like I caught, you know, my attention would snag. I, I was like, it's out, you know, it's out. Um, so I think kind of, yeah, like having editorial feedback on, you know, my writing from a very early point has made it so that I'm, you know, kind of not super precious about it, which I think is very helpful. Our next question is, one of my favorite things about the Babysitter's Coven series is the role that feminism plays in the text, mm -hmm. because I read a lot of books that are YA that have like feminist themes and typically they're written and it's like we're women we're saving the world but then it's all white women yeah. and it's it's trying so hard to be feminist but in my opinion intersectionality is what feminism is so it's not feminist and but I love that like your book is intersectional it features characters of different backgrounds and you use sensitivity readers which is something I always appreciate and Esme Cassandra Janice Esme's mom and even Pig Esme's dog are such strong women they're literally going out and saving the world while supporting each other and like championing each other's successes I love how Cassandra is described as being very stubborn and blunt and not taking too much to heart like she doesn't care that much about what people think of her and usually that's something seen as negative by people but you make it so that that's one of her traits that is the most endearing for us readers and I want to know did you set out to write a book that's feminist but has these women who are kind of breaking the mold in terms of what a good female character or a strong female character should be did you set did you set out to do that or did that just come about unconsciously? I mean, I think Cassandra definitely I wrote her because I wanted there to be a contrast between her and Esme, where you know, Esme had spent a lifetime like kind of making herself small, and I wanted her to meet someone who was the opposite of that. Um, and so that that could influence her character growth. Um, and then on the flip side, like, you know, Cassandra had like a really, you know, kind of, she's had a hard life. And I think like 
you can kind of see her character arc as she and Esme are becoming friends that like she kind of is able to like let loose a little bit more. So it's like I, I needed both of those girls' personalities to be what they were in the beginning so that they could become who they needed to be in the end. Um, and, you know, like I said, I come from a marketing background. So I am very aware of how feminism has been marketed the past few years where it's just like slapping the feminism word on something um, without really examining whether or not it actually is feminist is, it's a big problem. And, you know, I think for me, you know, no matter what you say politically, the most important thing is going to be how you treat the people in your life. And so it was really important to me that all of these characters are very loyal to each other because that to me is like more important for all of their like kind of personal and collective well-being than trying to, you know, kind of shoehorn any thing else into them, you know? So it definitely was very conscious, but I wanted to make sure that it was like, you know, that their actions were what drove that rather than just like their words or like how they were labeled, you know? And it's like, there there are some like obvious, like little like one-liners in there and like, you know, references to things that Esme wears and things like that, um, that, you know, kind of, let the reader know how she does think about things um, politically, but the most important thing for me was how she acts. That comes across so clearly. Mm -hmm. I'm one of those readers who like rolls her eyes whenever I read kind of those one-liners. I mean, with yours, I loved them because the actions of the characters back them up. But so often I see this book and this woman saying she's a feminist and then she is yelling at another woman for like wearing a low cut dress or something. But yours is so, it's not exactly subtle, but it's very like deliberate and it's not hitting you over the head with one-liners. It's actually you know, the actions are what make it feminist. Like, it just uh, warms my heart. (laughs) Our next question kind of goes back to the first thing you said where you made your books humorous. We want to know, like, how did you incorporate humor into your books? Because it's not just humor. It's also like the goings on in Spring River and the magic system is playfully absurd. So how did you make it absurd while still making it feel real and making the humor like kind of have a sort of logic yeah um I mean I don't know I think a lot of that it just kind of happened like again like I think kind of I didn't think about it it just happened on the page and it was what kind of flowed um and I think and I definitely like leaned into this more and more as it went on was you know, if it made me laugh, um, then I kind of assumed that at some point it would like make someone else laugh. And I just tried to make sure that all the humor felt very natural to me. And, you know, sometimes I would like cut out jokes. Um, and with like the magic system, um, again, I just kind of like wanted something that, I don't know, it, it, 
in a weird way, I felt like the magic system was actually one of the most realistic parts of the book because I feel like you read a lot of books where there's magic and it's like the character discovers they have powers and then instantly like they're just like this like totally badass superhero and like they're surrounded by like all of this like totally like otherworldly stuff um and that just never felt real to me like I wanted it to feel very much like what how someone would really feel if they had suddenly discovered that they had powers um and then you know I am very much into witchcraft and magic um in you know all aspects of my life and you know witchcraft evolves and it's like you know if you only have it where you can only make spells with these like you know super obscure ingredients that you know are found in the woods in Romania like nobody's going to be a witch you know so it's like you have to have things that are accessible and that are you know useful um, to people who are living in today's world. So that was kind of like how that came about. That was another thing that really grounds the story, the way they use random objects. I think they used a beach ball at one point (laughs) in their spells. I was laughing. It just, it really makes it feel like sort of cozy and home that it's like, it's not, the babysitter's coven world isn't so separate from our own world, but I feel like I can just walk in. I can become a sitter. (laughs) I can, I can, you know, save the world, have telekinesis. One of the things I said to my mom, because I talked to her about this book a lot, is that it feels like I'm playing pretend with my friends. Like, you know, when you're in kindergarten and you have like a little girl group of friends and you pretend that you have superpowers and you go around, that's how it felt. And it evokes this it's really like it's more mature than that, obviously, but it evokes a nostalgia for what it was like being like a young kid and thinking magic. Um, well, the magic in terms of like telekinetic powers could actually exist. It does. I mean, I, I firmly believe that, you know, I firmly believe in magic. Um, and, you know, I love that you use the word cozy because it was a very, you know, I started writing these books in 2015 and the first one was published in fall of 2019. Um, And then in, you know, early 2020, the world became a very different place and things got very serious. Um, And I got a lot of feedback from readers over the past, you know, couple of years that these books were really the escape they needed. because it was something that like made them feel comfortable um and kind of you know like there's a lot of crazy stuff happening in the sitter's world but it's still a very safe world you know it's like I think that like you read those books and you know right away that like Janice isn't going to turn out to be some sort of crazy you know mean like awful friend you know so I think like it kind of they they don't have that tension of like, oh God, what awful thing is going to happen. Um, so I think that lets readers kind of relax and like get into that world. Yeah. I love that some of the demons, I don't, I think one of the first demon they fight, his name is Mike. Or yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And he's just like this orange blob. He reminded me of Monsters Inc., the (laughs) the green guy. So it feels very comforting. They are in semi danger a few times, 
but the demons, they just sometimes make me laugh. They yeah. just kind of make me feel safe in the yeah. middle of an action scene because they're just kind of quirky. Yeah. And one of my other like burning questions for you is that Janice and Esme wear different outfits every yeah. single day and they name their outfits and they get them at thrift stores. So they have all these random eclectic clothes and the names for the outfits and the like outfit whole description of the outfits. It's so unique. And Quoth the Raven, oh snap, <laughs> is my favorite outfit name because Esme's wearing like a That's So Raven t-shirt yeah. and something probably reminiscent of Edgar Allan Poe, like on the bottom. And I want to know how you came up with like the specific outfits and then how you named them because almost every single outfit, I was just laughing out loud. I just couldn't (laughs) handle myself. Um, I mean, building the outfits. um, I, I mean, I love clothes. Um, I've always like borderline, like not to the extent that they do, um, but kind of like borderline play dress up, you know, it's like, I, I like, like if I'm going someplace, I like to kind of plan what I wear for how I want to like be when I'm in that space. Um, and so, you know, Esme and Janice, like they are just like super creative. And a lot of that was inspired by Claudia Kishi um, from the Babysitter's Club, because, you know, she was like, my first style icon and her outfits were so amazing. Um, and then I looked at a lot of like uh, early, like 2008, that era fashion bloggers. Um, you know, there was one style rookie and one like style bubble, um, both of whom, you know, went on to become, you know, very well known in the fashion industry. Um, but Tavi, who did Style Rookie, like she started that blog when she was 12, you know, and she was like putting together like these amazing, like very creative outfits. Um, and so I just kind of like looked at, you know, real life inspiration and then spent a lot of time thinking about what things would look like together. Um, and then, yeah, a lot of it like is based off of like real articles of clothing and like, you know, looking at um, like the kind of movies and music and pop culture that Esme and Janice like. Um, And again, kind of always going back to that idea that, you know, they want stuff that they have to dig for um, because then it's more special. And I kind of have that same, like sometimes it gets annoying because like, you know, I just moved into a new house uh, last year and it's like, there's all this stuff we need. And it's like, I could go out and buy it, but like, there's a part of me that just feels like that's cheating. And I like want to find it at a thrift store or at an antique mall or like, you know, something that has a story behind it. Um, You know, I really am into just things that have a story behind them rather than, you know, plain old objects. And so I put a lot of that into Janice and Esme and how they get dressed. Yeah, hundred percent. I think is a, pr- I love, love thrifting and a lot of my wardrobe is built off of, you know, these times when I go out with my friends and, you know, you find all these pieces and you, you fight over who gets to bring home this jacket <laughs> that you never thought you'd find. And, you know, it just, I think it's so interesting how much of this clothing while it seems superficial, just shows relationships between people and characters. And I think 
Well, our last question for you really is how is the writing process for Never Coming Home compared to everything for The Babysitter's Coven? And which do you enjoy more, do you think? Um, well, The Babysitter's Coven, I when I wrote the first one, I did not know that it was going to be a trilogy. Um, so that kind of created certain challenges in figuring out how to arc the story over the three books. Um, whereas Never Coming Home, um, I knew, always knew that it was going to be a standalone. Um, and I also, I grew up reading mysteries. Um, like my parents are both big mystery readers. Um, and, you know, when I was like, you know, in my early teens and in high school, I read so quickly that I would often just end up reading whatever was sitting around because I needed something to read. So it's like, I was reading like the same like mystery stories that my mom was. Um, and so when I started writing Never Coming Home, um, I was actually surprised at how easy it was because it was a genre that I was like super familiar with. Um, and I knew from the very beginning when I started writing it, how that was gonna end. Whereas like with The Babysitter's Coven, I didn't know how it was going to end. So there was kind of like more figuring it out um, as it went along. And it, yeah, it's totally different. And one of the things that's interesting about never coming home is the characters are not likable people. Um, the concept of that, of never coming home is, it's kind of inspired by Agatha Christie's and then there were none, um, which is like the story of 10 people who are invited to an island um, for their secrets. And, you know, over the course of the book, um, their secrets are revealed and people start getting killed. Um, so it was very interesting for me. Like at first I was like, how am I gonna write this book with all of these awful characters? Like I'm used to writing about characters that I love, um, but, it was really interesting when I was writing Never Coming Home because as the characters became more real and as I started to like work in their backstories and kind of like what got them to be the kind of person that they are at the time the story is taking place, like I really started to feel a lot of empathy for them. Um, and, you know, I'll make sure you guys get copies of Never Coming Home. Like some of these people have done really awful things but then you still kind of feel for them because you kind of can see how what they did happen. Um, and so, yeah, it was a totally different process. And, you know, also it was just, um, you know, Never Coming Home, I think, was written in a kind of darker place for me than the babysitter's coven was. Um, you know, a lot has happened in my personal life like the past couple of years in addition to just being in a pandemic. Um, so I think it was very easy for me to get into kind of like the dark spaces in these characters' heads. Um, and, you know, I was able to take a lot of, you know, the complicated feelings that I was having and give them to these characters. Um, in the same way I did with Esme and Janice and Cassandra, but with them, I was kind of like giving my light and my laughs. Um, whereas like with Never Coming Home, whatever, you know, I was able to give these characters like my icky feelings. Um, so it's very different uh, 
but I really enjoyed both of them, you know, and, and I think everyone's always like, are you going to do more babysitters come? I don't know. You know, I definitely feel like I'm not done with the series yet, but I definitely needed to take a break and I don't necessarily know where I would want to take it if I did more. Um, and I feel like it's very important to honor that feeling and return to that series when I have a clear idea, because that is what will protect the integrity of it rather than trying to just, you know, keep going in a way that doesn't feel natural. I will always be here to read any babysitter's <laughs> company oh, so extra novels. Yeah. And I know, like when I saw that you were going to write a mystery, I knew you were going to be good at it because the babysitter's coven has these little mysteries interwoven, like what happened to Esme's mom and eventually what's going on with Cassandra. Yeah. And the books read kind of like mysteries in terms of how compelling they are. So like, I just, I know you're going to, blow me away with that book so well, and with never coming home there is a lot of dark humor there's kind of like some there's a lot of like absurdist humor because again like I was thinking like you know if you suddenly discover you have magical powers like everything's not going to be like cool as a cucumber and it's like you know if you're on an island where everyone keeps getting murdered like there's going to be some scrambling, you know, it's like every idea you have isn't going to be the best idea, you know? Um, and so I think there is some like absurdist humor in never coming home. And a lot of it is very like satirical. Um, you know, it's kind of taking the worst of influencer culture and taking that to the nth degree um, and kind of looking at how social media can or how people can kind of get caught up in who they are online and let who they are offline kind of like wither. Um, so yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot going on in there. So I hope that, yeah, I hope you guys enjoy it. <laughs> and it's, it's scary because it's, it's, you know, such a departure from what I've done before. Um, but, uh, you know, I think that as a writer, like to me, what is the most important thing about writing is to kind of all of, always follow what I'm most interested in. Um, and, you know, I think that that ultimately leads to kind of more authentic writing than kind of trying to stay in one genre or give people what I think they want. Um, so, you know, I just have to like, kind of like go wherever the ideas are and kind of trust that you know, some, I'll probably lose some audience, but I'll probably gain some new audience, you know, with this different kind of book. Yes, you're definitely keeping me steady in terms of, <laughs> in terms of being your audience. I'll follow you anywhere. I will, thank you much. so much. Um, those are all the questions we have for you today. Yeah. So like, thank you from the bottom oh, no, of thank our hearts. Thank you guys so much. This thank is so, so much. Yeah, this is really fun. Oh my gosh. And let us know, like, where can we find you on Instagram, on your website? Uh, my website, Instagram, and TikTok are all the same, which is Hey Kate Williams. Perfect. I will. I'll visit there again <laughs> for like the tenth time. So, like, thank you so so much. That concludes today's interview with Kate Williams. It was so amazing to hear her talk about making each of her scenes propel the story forward and how that keeps her books compelling for her readers. 
I also really enjoyed hearing how she wrote the characters in the Babysitter's Coven series and how she made her book a feminist masterpiece by having all of the characters support each other no matter what. I am highly anticipating Kate Williams' upcoming novel, Never Coming Home, and can't wait to see how she made this book a little darker and more satirical than her previous work. If you want to pre-order Never Coming Home, I will include a link in the description of this episode, as well as links to all of Kate's other social media. Feel free to follow us on Instagram, too, at keeping.tabs.podcast. You can also follow this podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts if you would like to be notified when we post new episodes. We will see you with another episode in April. Bye!